So, thank you for sitting down and talking to me. I know you're very busy and you've got some exciting things coming up. Artists in Residence is this idea that I had two or three years ago. Basically, I became fascinated with the idea of, I was like studying the brain and language and I was fascinated with what language is and thought and then that came kind of move on to my own interest of creating things. And it was something that I always felt the need to do but I didn't really make anything or I, I didn't know what it was that I wanted to create. Um, and so I started to think about why I felt that and why so many people throughout human existence mm. have felt this burning desire to create something. But I thought, why not speak to people who are creating um, and yeah, get first-hand experiences. So yeah, that's where it started and had the opportunity to speak to photographers, other writers, um, designers and some really amazing people. But having always followed your work, and living so close by. Um, I was really excited to hear about your new book and so I thought it'd be amazing to speak to you and find out about, it, se it seems to me from the outset that you're creative in, in many ways. <laughs> it, it takes kind. different forms for you. Yeah, yeah, I suppose it does. It's funny, you know, listening to you talk about that, I've had really similar thoughts myself. I don't really consider myself that much of a creative person. So when I was younger, I was like, obsessed with art, did a lot of art, did a little bit of art at university, and then it was like art or words. Uh, and I think a career as an artist was never going to be something I could do, but words were, right? I wanted to write stories, which is why I wanted to be a journalist. And so in my mind, as especially as an arts journalist, you are constantly reporting on the work of creative people, and I kind of always thought of myself as a bit of a bystander to that. Similar to you, similar interests, like talking to people about why they make things is interesting. Um, and so, it's interesting that you said that, yes, so I suppose there's the writing, and I don't really do any art anymore, no. but I, I have an affinity for beautiful things, I think, I think most people do, really, but I think the thing that kind of unlocked a lot of, I guess, that creativity and that need to write and the need to write in a way that was separate from journalism was uh, encountering nature and plants and gardening and for that I found quite by accident to be a huge inspiration and found that I, I just found myself writing about it because of how it allowed me to access certain feelings I think. And so do you think, I know we talked about imposter syndrome when I came yeah. in, but do you think that you would define yourself as a writer creatively? Yeah it's taken me a really long time to call myself so for, for a long time it was easy to say journalist. I worked in a newspaper and I did journalism and, and I was very proud, I still am proud of being a journalist. I think actually everyone gets a, they get a bad rap but um, it was a career that I had wanted. So I was and it's a career be... that's heavily in demand as well. You yeah. Know, something that a lot of people aspire to. Right, right. There's a certain sense of achievement of having done it and I still think it's kind of magic that I can afford um, what is for me, a very nice life through writing things, like that is an enormous privilege and one I'm really, really grateful for. But it took me a long time to make that shift from journalist to writer. And I still don't really call myself an author. Um, but you have got your second book coming yeah. out very soon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know, but you know, I just, I would just find like writers a catch-all. I write things. Um, also, people are going to be like, what books have you got? Yeah. Where can I find them? Yeah, yeah. And people generally like, okay, what do you write? It's like, oh, well, I've got a book. I mean, I've got books and, um, and this and that. And it, I think it's something that, particularly in metropolitan 
societies. In London, Londoners are terrible for being like, what do you do is that open gambit and you have to define yourself. And um, yeah, increasingly... You can't just be a person. You can't just be you a person. To, you have to have something attached to you. Exactly. And I think increasingly in recent years that the notion of what I do and what my work is is becoming increasingly slippery. So it's not as easy. So writer's good catch-all. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and so your new book, we'll talk about it a bit more later on, sure. um, but Rootbound, yeah. how are you feeling about its dawn yeah, upon the world? It's so funny. It's quiet excitement. I've found in the past with books that it's and actually generally while writing it, raw terror would be closer. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you've encountered this with other people you've spoken to. Whenever you're making something, you can make it in the safety of your brain and your laptop and your house in this case and and the notion of it actually existing in the world is is an alien concept and it's still quite alien and surreal but yeah it's exciting so far people have been very kind and generous thank you i'll let you pour the tea tea. thank you Um, (laughs) cheers so when you were writing it and it is a very honest and truthful (laughs) it it feels um in expression when you were writing it, did you have any thoughts that anybody would be reading it, or you know? Oh yeah, 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 for real. Like, and that was one of the the thing. It's funny, like people who've known me who've read it, which are not many people because it's only really people like you who have got proofs. But like my mum sort of stole a proof off my pregnant sister. She got one. That's how outrageous. <laughs> yeah, my sister had one because she was pregnant with her second child and I was like, you're not going, when you've got a baby, you're not going to be able to read it, so get the proof kind of thing. Mm. My mum stole it off her and then having not been fully satisfied with that, um, then I ended up just giving her the PDF to read. So okay. she was. She sort of said to me, she's like, you didn't, you should have told us that you were so unhappy. And I was like, well, there's a reason why people write. Like, I don't express myself as a human in the same way that I do in my writing. And it was very much a way of processing things that I hadn't been able to access. So, yes, I was conscious of people reading it. And it's difficult to write a memoir, which is essentially what this is, without thinking, oh, all of my friends and my family are going to read this and know what was going on. And that was a huge consideration. And at many times it was like it was increasingly difficult to access those feelings for fear of what people might think. But immediate people in your life as opposed to strangers. Yeah, for sure. Like, strangers, who cares? Like, yeah. who am I to them? Yeah. Like, I'm not. But, yeah, the people... And actually, that was some, that was probably the hardest bit. That was the thing that took many, many drafts, was to make those feelings believable without being mawkish and honest... And I, I played a lot around doing that before actually accessing the pulp of it. And I, I've got a very good editor who is like, mm, is this? Like, yeah. this doesn't seem legit. Like, no. you're not doing it properly. So that, yeah, I mean, good editors are essential for writing. And I'm sure you're on yourself as well. So <laughs> it's, it, but it's, I imagine it's very interesting to experience both sides of the coin yeah. and have both experiences of that. Yeah. Um, but just to ask, so the book is called Rootbound, um, yeah. and obviously the key theme in your flat, in your life, <laughs> in your outward expression is gardening and plants um, yeah. and horticulture. Probably an impossible question, but what is it about plants for you that is, what is it for you? I think it's that they operate on their own terms. A lot of the book is about the notion of control 
and how much we have over our lives. And what happens when things go wrong. And the re reason I found plants so reassuring was because we can control them to a certain extent. That's what gardening is, it's managed nature. But that doesn't mean that, you know, if we went out onto the balcony now, even though we're coming down with colds and we're hibernating and it's dark all the time, there are things growing and things blooming. And, and I, I find them endlessly surprising, even though I know what they're going to do. And I find that endlessly inspiring. And I, there's been a lot of science, increasing amount of science, to show how our brains react to nature. Um, yeah, they, they show a different way of living. So I think I first um, found your work, I think it was about two years ago. I was, I'd just moved down to London, mm. um, very much like you said, didn't have a job, didn't know why I'd moved down to London yeah. was the main thing. Yeah. A very happy life in Yorkshire, um, where life felt a little bit <laughs> less of a struggle maybe. Um, but so I moved down, so I was writing freelance bits whilst trying to survive. Um, and so I, I was commissioned to write an article about houseplants and why they were so important for the air around yeah, us. Yeah. So obviously in my research, I came across <laughs> Alice Vincent. It's, it's, been, it's been really amazing. And as I said, reading the book, I was gobsmacked about how, how applicable it was yeah. to my life as well and, and how strongly I felt the things that you're saying. And then I had to check myself and had to realise that it's probably much wider than, you know, I was like, why am I the same as this woman? Why have we, why, why, is my, why am I mimicking her in every way? But it's, but it's very interesting that it's very much like a zeitgeist and yeah. it's very much the feeling of the times of wanting to feel connected to nature. You know, something that's so intrinsically human and essential to our life. Um, yeah, it's very, it's very exciting for me to watch that kind of, journey and your journey with plants and I can only aspire to actually being as good a gardener as you are because <laughs> my plants are really all dying at the moment. It's, I mean, if you took a close look at the house plants, <laughs> they are, they're essentially on their funeral parade. Really? They? <laughs> they're not very happy at all, but it's the time of year, like autumn happens inside the house as well. And yeah. People expect things to stay perfect and they change and actually... I think the thing, the thing I tell a lot of new gardeners when they're like upset that something is going through a totally natural life process mm -hmm. is that one of the things that you have to learn, you can only learn it yourself, is that plants change and die back and grow again and that's the beauty of it. And it's when you realise that things can't stay perfect forever that it, yeah. it becomes uh, interesting. But yeah, you're right, it is a zeitgeist, and I do address that in the book, and you know, it's so easy for headlines to be like, millennials have houseplants instead of babies, and it's like, why are you mocking the fact that we want to be more connected to nature when our planet's dying? Yeah. Like, this is how we got into this mess in the and first place. And because of circumstance, perhaps we can't have children, you know, we don't right. have the avail availability, we don't have the money, we don't have the security. We so, don't want to bring children into a planet that might not exist in an existable fashion in the next 30 years. Which is, you know, some people, some people still don't want to accept it, but 30 it. years feels not even tangible, you know, like that, that's bonkers. Yeah. So, as you say, to mock that resounding cry mm. from an entire generation of people seems to be missing the point somewhat. Mm. It's interesting, the, um, the working title for the book when I submitted it was The Hardy Millennial, which, in hindsight, I'm very glad did not become the title. But 
it was it's a play on the notion like Hardy Perennial, mm-hmm. uh, which is increasingly difficult to describe to my foreign editors. Uh, but right. <laughs> there was this brilliant conversation with like my Dutch editor being like, "This is what a perennial is. This is what a millennial." It sounds is. like millennial. <laughs> it's a rhyme <laughs> in English. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, and I think it was a kind of backlash on that snowflake culture. I mean that we have had to struggle against an awful lot of things, finance, planet, work industry, inflation, housing crisis, and people just want to be like, oh, they just love avocados and houseplants. Yeah. Uh, They don't care about anything. Yeah. (laughs) So, and that's a tangent. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Um, So in your, so we talked about how you are a writer and Mm. an author and Mm. a journalist. Your day job, um, Mm. but not for much longer, um, is entertainment and arts writer yeah at the correct. telegraph yeah no i can see why you hesitate i i'm my I job description mess it up. Changes, yeah <laughs> my job description changes endlessly but it's the way of journalism at the moment everyone does a million different jobs so you've you've come to be more comfortable with writing creatively for yourself yeah. and as you say as a therapy and as an essential tool but what is it about writing that made you want to do it as a full-time job or yeah, like, yeah, you know what, for me it was always, I guess, like a, having another language, even though it's obviously I write in English, I don't speak any other languages, but there was a way, it's funny, journalists split into the people who really love writing and the people who love all the bits that aren't the writing. And actually the sitting down and the writing is the bit they hate the most. So some people love doing the interview, love finding the story. And I like those things too, but for me, sitting down and writing, when it's good it feels like flying. Like, it genuinely is the most freeing thing. It feels like a magic trick. And uh, at the moment, I, you know, and so, you know, I've been at the Telegraph seven years. um, And now, you know, I'm blessed to be in a situation where I'm just like, oh, I've got to get this feature out. You know, it's it's what I do on a daily basis. But when I wanted, when I was 16, the process of... And you'll have heard this because I wrote about it in the book. But essentially, I was fascinated by music and I loved reading The Enemy. And I loved reading the paper. And I loved the way that people could take something and convey it into words and make it fun to read about. And that was what I wanted to do. And I suppose it's just conveying experience. I, I wanted to tell people things. I think all journalists are kind of egotists, if not to say low-level narcissists. Like, we want... We think ourselves good enough to give our impression in the world with our name attached to it. But that's what I loved, and I loved the work of other writers, especially journalists. And I just wanted to, I mean, journalism is essentially telling stories, telling short little stories, mm-hmm. and, and that's what I wanted to do. And it's something I've always found quite easy, actually. I can do it quickly. I don't struggle much with writer's block. So, yeah. I wanted to ask you about your kind of process. Yeah. So your process as a journalist, Mm. and obviously that's something that you've honed every day Mm. over the last, you know... Decade, really. Decade, exactly. Professionally, and then your process as a creative writer, Mm. as an author. Is that a different process for you? Um, I suppose it's like putting, like, different gears in... Um, that's a really interesting question because a lot of we have fed so much frankly bullshit about how writers work like especially if you're an author you think you have to go sit in a garret smoke a cigarette be a bit hungry and be sad painfully sad and actually when i was writing the book i was actually in a pretty good place in my life i got a book deal for goodness sake and like 
a nice home and nice like support system. Mm -hmm. So it was quite interesting to put myself back in that position where none of those things mm. were the case. I was constantly battling with that notion that because I was sitting and typing it out on the tube, which sometimes I'd write on the tube, or sometimes I'd write in the library, or sometimes I'd have to refer back to even Instagram posts and stuff to see how I was getting on. Um, because I was doing that, it wasn't correct. And then with journalism, the interesting thing about journalism is that actually, even though you work in teams and you work in newspapers or whatever, it's quite a solitary process. And people don't glamorise it or romanticise it too much. So you don't sit and talk to another journalist about your writing process. And it was only when I started going out with another writer that I realised how everyone's writing process differs so much. Mm -hmm. So as a journalist, uh, the job is to get it done and get it done quickly. And so I am quite efficient in that I'll frequently do phone interviews and transcribe at the same time. Right. Um, I don't, you know, I don't have the luxury of doing long languid interviews with people. I, you know, you need to, if you need to make a feature out of 10 minutes of conversation, so be it. Yeah. Um, and that sounds very chop and change, but it's actually just how the sausage gets made increasingly, which is a real shame. Writing, obviously, I don't have to, it's just me. And... It's just me setting those deadlines. It's just me coming up with the ideas. And so I would mostly, rather than be in a newsroom where you're constantly bouncing ideas of other editors and taking demands and twisting copy around, mm -hmm. it would be me sat here in this seat normally, working out how many words to write that day. Do you find that easier or harder? Because there's two, there's two elements of framework. So, as you say, when you're in the newsroom, got to have this, it's got to be now, this news has just broken, this has got to be this, and there's yeah. that element of, well there's that huge element of absolute, you've got to get this out now. Yeah. But with the book, yeah. I mean that that would just terrify me. <laughs> it would absolutely terrify me, oh, okay, so we've just got all these blank pages, I've got to fill them. It's like training for a marathon, which is something I have not done, so I don't know why I yeah. keep using <laughs> that analogy, but I have, I have trained for other large sporting events, yeah. <laughs> which is, a sentence comes out when that sounds ridiculous. <laughs> um, or training for doing your A-levels or something. You just have to... The notion of writing a dissertation is terrifying. But when you break it down into where you have to get your research and you have to just say you do a little bit every day. The way I did need framework. The book is uh, a year split into 12 chapters, um, which are months. And I had essentially the same amount of time. I think I had about nine months, but I'd written three of those chapters already. So I set myself the challenge of doing a chapter a month in the according month, which made it very easy. Yeah, absolutely. Because you when you're writing a book about nature, reminisce on the yeah, you and... can be. Uh, in fact, our, our weather patterns have been so crazy that they're not very similar anymore. But yeah, it, it was an easy point of reference. Um, so it took one thing out of it, and and as long as I got that month done within the month, it didn't matter. So that might be doing a couple of hours every day, or it might be having a week off and then having a huge session on the weekend. And the biggest challenge with writing a book is sitting down and doing it. It's yeah. not making your words poetic. It's when you're knackered or you're hungover or you just can't be asked, sitting down and doing it is the hardest thing. Which no one really tells you because it's not particularly romantic or elegant. Well, it's not, is it? No. And <laughs> so then, force and yourself to write, and even if it's terrible, write something. Exactly. And as you say, you know, there's all these articles and all of these theories on, you know, you need to do this to write and you need to do this to get to the true heart of your work. But, you know, and then there's also, you know, equally every single motivational quote that's like, if you don't just sit and write, it's not going to get written. That's what I feel has to be the truth of it. The thing that helped me, there are a couple of things that helped me, that I suppose are kind of Instagram quotes, but from people who probably would never use Instagram. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
And one was Rebecca Solnit, who is obviously the acclaimed essayist, wrote a piece. It's like Rebecca Solnit's tips for writing. If you Google that, it'll come up in various mm -hmm. forms. And one of them was writing isn't typing, which I found very, very helpful, and especially if you're writing a non-fiction book. And even if you're writing a fiction book, you're probably going to do some level of research. But for me, the, the typing was actually the easy bit, and a lot of the writing was done in my head as I was drifting through the week thinking about things. Mm -hmm and not sitting down trying to think, I'd invariably be like on the way to the post office or grabbing lunch and it'd be like, there comes an idea. And so often it was a case of trying to capture that idea in some format so that you could later type it out. And the other one, and I'm, I feel like it might be someone like Elizabeth Gilbert or Heather Havelreski, like one of those big American writers, which is sit down and write your mediocre book already. Because I think you sit there and you're like, I'm going to write this spectacular work of mm -hmm. art. And that amount of pressure is obviously crippling and so actually to have someone be like your book is going to be average go and write your average book is Absolutely. very freeing yeah 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 have you read her book uh, big magic no i've only read the significance of all things which is about moss okay okay <laughs> and it's a good yarn i like that book a lot but yeah what happens in uh, that one? so big magic is uh non-fiction and it's all about the creative process yeah, it, it's good to read it quickly. You know, there's some bits that you can kind of get stuck on, but the overwhelming parts are exactly that. Everything you write is going to be relatively okay, you know, and, and that's it. And some of them you'll have to throw away, but you're not going to produce this absolutely blockbusting, amazing work of art on a casual Tuesday. You have to put, sit and put in the work. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the way she writes is very magical. But yeah, in your, you know, new world as second-time author perhaps getting lost in that yeah. and not knowing what's next could be a good one to pick That's up. So good. Yeah, I said a similar thing at my creative writing, creative non-fiction group, first session, like no one really knew each other and I think that someone was raised the notion of getting caught up in their work and I was just like, you just got to accept that like 90% of what you write is going to be distinctly average and if you're lucky you have good like one sentence. As yeah. a journalist, like if I write one really good piece a year, I'm pleased. Yeah, I yeah. write like three a week. So if you think about those incredible writers, they often make their reputation off the back of one or two pieces, mm -hmm. really, over the course of their In their entire like, life, exactly. Yeah, like, I think, especially our generation, particularly because everything is so rapid and the output is so frequent that we feel like everything has to be amazing. And it's like, well, no, you're lucky if you do, if you do one good feature, if you do one good book, like, count yourself lucky. Absolutely. Um, that didn't go down very well, though. Everyone sort of laughed nervously. Just, we don't need you to say that! <laughs> it's just like, what's the point? Yeah. Um, but yeah. From reading the book and from hearing you talk, it writing is something that seems to come very naturally to you, or mm. it seems to be a natural calling for you. Mm. Um, what do you think about inspiration, and particularly inspiration in your work? Do you think you have to sit around waiting for inspiration to strike? Why turn up? Yeah, right. Really good question. Um, the inspiration thing is so interesting because I've been struggling with it probably, where are we now, December? Probably for like at least four months and it's terrifying and it's only just started to change in the last literally like 48 hours which is exciting and I'm not going to tell you about it yet. Okay, yeah. <laughs> because it's like this tiny nascent seedling that could die at any moment. But, yeah. um, and it's really scary not to have inspiration you, and... Mostly, I spent that time just panicking and feeling quite sad and, mm -hmm. and saying things like, I will never create again, yeah. which anyone in sensible company would laugh at. Yeah. <laughs> um, but where do I go for it? It comes out of the blue. I can't hunt it down. 
reading things mm-hmm. helps massively. Although when I wrote the book, I went on a nature memoir ban for like a year. Why? Because I didn't want my work to be influenced or inadvertently mimicking that of others. Um, and so, yeah, reading things. Having said that, I have mostly read stuff that's completely not related to what might inspire me. Like, I've read, reread the Philip Pullman His Dark Materials trilogy. Are you watching um, the series? Yeah, I, I've missed the last couple of weeks. Evidently, don't have a television manager, yeah, yeah. so I don't. I tend to have to be motivated to watch them. Right, um, and I'm not been. So, I've actually. It's been really nice to lean back into fiction and like completely unrelated fiction. Um, and often I just write about my feelings, which like which can be sparked by say having a cup of tea with a new friend, which is like the first thing I wrote for my newsletter that felt like it meant something the other week and. Um, a lot of the battle is a dramatic word. A lot of the struggle and the things I've been thinking about is that um, having written a nature memoir, I worry that the only thing I can write about is myself. And so I've been pushing against a lot of that. Okay. And Do you not feel like your day job and your previous book, you know, counter counteracts that? So, yeah, um, it's a really funny thing. I've got quite a... My first book was a practical gardening book, which was a commission, so someone came to me and asked me to write it. And it's something that I still don't have a huge amount of ownership over. And my day job is something that I enjoy greatly, but because it's often like, you'll sink into a subject for a few hours, you'll write a feature, mm-hmm. it's done. It's a really good point, I hadn't really thought about it like that. I think I just see them as two separate things. Mm-hmm. And actually, one of the nice things about going into a new job, which is more, I think, going to be more meditative, is that I hope to bring my creative practice closer to my day job, and also maybe some of my day job into my creative practice. Um, But yeah, inspiration is really hard, because it's very worrying when you don't have it, and essentially boredom breeds creativity, there's truth in that. And who of us is really that, if we're bored, I feel like we're career bored, or we're life bored. We're not, like, bored enough to go and go on a walk, although frequently going on a walk is what helps. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, it is a real thing and I don't really have an answer, I think I just, patience. Yeah. What does it feel like when that idea sparks? Or... It feels like a flame or something, it's so, ex- it's so exciting mm-hmm. and I, I will be tapping it out on my phone on the tube home, like I will be writing Desperate straight Desperate not to lose it. Yeah, the thing that's coming to mind at the moment is, um, I was in Hanoi in Vietnam on a holiday and um, we were cycling around and I fell off my bike and it was fine. Um, but like kind of sent hilariously like this car of orange tipping down. It was, just, it was hugely embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. And my partner was like flapping around trying to buy all of the oranges. Oh my and, like, God. We were being yeah. shot and I was like bleeding the floor, from the face. Yeah. And it was just like, oh God, okay. Um, and... Um, and that moment in the, you know, in kind of 10, 15 minutes after that, I was just like, this is, I want to write about this. And as a result, I just had to go incredibly quiet for the rest of the bike ride. Cause I was, and my partner was like, you're writing in your head, aren't you? And I was like, yes. He's like, okay. <laughs> and I'll, so it's, it's this thing where you're just, people have different ways, but sentences come fully formed in my head. Paragraphs come fully formed in my head. And then you're just like, I just think you need to keep it here. So they'll just arrive and then if you're fortunate you can write it down at that time and if not you've kind of got to accept that if it's good enough it'll hang around for a bit. That's really, I mean that's the thing that's very fascinating to me is the idea of, and actually so I spoke to Kate Hamilton, okay. um, so she's amazing and she, um, yeah, she used to work at Suitcase and she's now got her content agency 
And she was telling me the very same thing with her mm. writing. And so she swims. And when she's swimming, yeah. she, she writes out entire stories. Yeah. Cycling and I, happens to me as well. I, but I can't, I, can't, I can't imagine how that stays in your head. I, I, I really struggle with that. Um, some of it is repetition. So if you're forming a sentence, then you'll just cling on to a few of those words and hope they don't spark. But things do get lost. Um, or the product that comes out in the end will be different from what was in your head. And then sometimes afterwards you'll be like, oh, I meant to get that in. But I feel like it's all just kicking around there somewhere. And if it doesn't come back, then it just wasn't that good. Like, you can't hang on to it. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting that happens to her too, because I thought everyone, that happened to everyone like that, and apparently it doesn't, so. No, it's, it's a new phenomenon for me it? to hear about. Yeah. But, you know, that's the whole interest for me, for speaking to, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and particularly to speak to people who uh, express themselves, obviously nobody expresses themselves in the same way, but through the same medium. Yeah. So it's interesting because actually you're the first, you know, so you're the second writer that I've, that I've spoken to, so it'd be interesting to kind of see with my photographers and things like that, how it works. the underlying yeah. themes and how everybody's process is incredibly different, but there are things that help everyone, so very interesting. And so, like, we should talk about plants. Yeah. <laughs> we I haven't really this. talked about plants. No. Um, so we're sat next to your beautiful balcony. Oh. Gardening and... I don't know, would you say it's gardening? Yes. Yes. Because um, it's taking it a bit like being a writer. It's taken me a long time to call myself a gardener. Yeah. And I think gardening and gardener is such... They've become such frumpy words. Really? So people um, don't really want to use them. How do you feel... Um, so we've talked about how incredible and devastating, you know, plants can be and, yeah. and how they'll do what they, what they want. Yeah. How does it make you feel when you're around plants mm. and particularly tending plants and watching them grow? It's not so much how I feel when I'm around them, but how I feel when I'm not around them. So, um, I sublet this place to a, a friend who needed somewhere to stay in November, which is also when, like, the light suddenly just vanished. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's obviously a gradual process, but I find that it definitely gets to a certain point in winter and I suddenly just feel like I'm living in a cave. And during that time, I was staying at my partner's, and he doesn't have any outdoor space, and uh, he lives in a very built-up area, and I, like the assault on my mood and my senses was just brutal, mm -hmm. actually. Um, and walking in here, and I find it, you know, we're blessed to be here in the morning, um, but often I leave the house before dawn and I won't get back until quite late. So you don't so get the daylight. Don't get the daylight. Also, uh, I'll frequently try and get out at lunchtime, but to sit here and look at it is a real balm. I'll describe it for the listeners, essentially. Um, all we can see at the moment is woodland, Beyond that, there's a golf course because the trees are dropped. You can now see the golf course and the woodland beyond it. And then my balcony is small, but it has things growing on it. So it, it does feel like we, <laughs> it, we're so not in the city. Yeah. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah, it's quite nuts. Now it's winter and the tree, the leaves have dropped. You can see the lights of the city at, at night. Right. Just in the distance. Mm -hmm. But you, you could be anywhere. And I find it hugely calming. Like, uh, And when I was writing, I'd sit and write. And, you know, it's pretty quiet probably because they're doing loads of drilling downstairs. Yeah. But normally, you know, woodpeckers, blue tits. Well, absolutely. When we, when we went outside, I did hear, you know, I was like, we should sit out here if it wasn't yeah. December and cold. But yeah. you could hear beautiful birds. and There's always birds. Yeah. There's strange squirrel noises. There's yeah. foxes <laughs> mating. Like, it's not all bucolic, but you are very much aware that you're inhabiting a natural space. I just... I find it a really necessary thing and when I did move here it was a real challenge to find a space that I could afford that had outdoor space which I think is is a problem that a lot of us have that like 
places just aren't built with balconies anymore and all of these new builds that are going up have like nominal balconies mm -hmm. but they're all sort of done in such a way that it well I have greened them for some friends but like it, they're not nurturing yeah I mean for me it just makes sense it was interesting for me for you to say that you think that you write about you're, you're worried about writing about yourself too much yeah because surely that's what it is we can yeah. all we can only write about our own experiences right but then if you were to I mean I, I flirted with the idea of fiction I don't think I could be a novelist um which is fine mm. but I um we do only write about ourselves but I think a lot of non-fiction writers go and do other things and at the moment that's kind of what I'm playing with the notion of and yeah we I suppose that's the ultimate act of writing, isn't it, to inhabit those other spaces. And that's a whole other discussion of which spaces you can inhabit and which stories are yours to tell. But the, yeah, the Instagram thing is interesting. I think sometimes it encourages a certain mode and I, I do keep, much as I document a lot of my life, there's an awful lot of my life that does not get documented on there. And I think that's kind of for sanity. Um, but it is, it's more a good thing than it is a bad, for sure. And so Rootbound, mm. um, so it's out on 30th of January. It is. Why would you like someone to pick it up? It's a question I'm not very good at answering. I think what other people have said, what the blurbs have said, is that it's given them hope, which is the one resounding thing that I've had from a lot of people is that it gives them hope, which is odd because I never really wrote it as a hopeful story. But it's lovely. I think... If you felt that you needed more greenery in your life and you felt you were disconnected from nature and you didn't really know what to do about that, it might encourage you to think about it in a different way. I suppose there are other things. If you've ever been heartbroken, if you've ever felt like you were in the wrong place in a city, it might help with that as well. But otherwise, I don't know. The covers, are, the, the designers done a really nice job on the cover. I'd say it's really beautiful, <laughs> and the hardbacks are yeah. going to be so gorgeous. Um, Have you seen them? No, they no. don't exist yet. Okay, I'm hoping it'll be a Christmas present. Oh wow! I'm hoping. Yeah, yeah. But we don't know. But yeah, they're like cloth bound. Oh wow! They're going to be so beautiful. Yeah, they are. <laughs> so if you don't buy it for you and you want to get it as a present to stick on a coffee table, yeah, then that yeah. is also fine. But you might find something in it interesting closing thoughts what is something you'd love to create it's a very good question it's one that's been uh <laughs> one that's been, been you around my brain yeah what else to create and it doesn't have to be words. words or anything yeah i don't know what i'd like to create because i suppose it's what emerges over time but i'd like what i would really love and what i really hope will happen is that so long as this motivates me, I will keep writing until the bitter end. I want to be writing seems on like my deathbed. Yeah, but so it seems like a good enough <laughs> Yeah, you know, and if, mantra. Not, if I'm bored of writing, then something else. But I, um, I hope never to be bored. And for your own life, mm. how do you think it would be in your, in, for you personally if you didn't write? I feel like I'd lost a means of communicating. I'd feel silenced in some way. Um, and something I worry about quite a lot because I'm a worrier. Yeah. As I dare say, if you've read any part of my book, yeah. you know that I'm a worrier. Is that life will get in the way, especially as a woman. So many things expected of us, and even now we are still fighting for the space to have a creative process. So yeah, it's very important. But I've been very fortunate so far, and I will continue to carve the time. So absolutely, <laughs> I hope so. 
So actually, at the beginning, you said that you didn't know if you really thought of yourself as being particularly creative, mm. which is mind-boggling. <laughs> but, you know, here we are. Um, but perhaps for a specific person who's thinking that they feel frustrated and they want, that you know, they're looking for something in their mm. life, or on a wider societal level, why do you think thinking creatively matters? It matters massively. It solves problems, gives people hope. The interesting thing in that obviously we're like about four days after the election result last yeah. week, which left a lot of people quite despairing. And the one thing that emerged from that was that a lot of people donated to the Arts Emergency Fund and a lot of people decided to create. And I think that having a form of expression is vital in order for people to find solutions to problems that seem unmanageable. So, yeah. Anyone who's read 1984 will know what happens when people aren't allowed to express themselves. So you don't even need to read 1984, you literally just need to look at any dictatorship in the world of which things still exist. So. Cool, thank you very much. Thank you.